0: how would you assess the overall generosity of Christians today? Well, studies have revealed that on average, they give 2.3% of their income to the church. During the Great Depression, they gave 3.3%. Even more troubling, perhaps, is that 33 to 50% of church members report that they give absolutely nothing at all. And some say that at best... 25% of congregants in Christian churches give. Of the roughly 95% who give less than 10% to their church, 15% give more than 2%, but less than 10% to charitable organizations. 50% of that group give less than 2% to charity. And 30% of that group make no charitable contributions whatsoever. Although I have no idea what percentage any of you gives, either to our church or to any other charity, I would bet, without hesitation, that our church absolutely blows away these averages. So many examples come to mind. Just these last couple of years and the giving that was done just to get us here in this building... I think often of how word goes out of a need that's risen up amongst one of our members. There's a response, rapid and thorough. What can I give? What do I need to do? So many of you have taught and modeled for me what generous giving looks like. As I was thinking this week, faces were coming to my mind of people who have shown me this is what generosity looks like. And, and I know that there's all kinds of examples and people that I'm totally unaware of. And my family and I directly benefit from your generosity through my salary, which you graciously give to me, for which I'm grateful. Well, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul talks to them about giving in chapters 8 and 9. And if I were a better preacher... I think this morning I would cover both of those chapters. That probably would be best. But we're only going to look at verses 1 through 15 of chapter 8. And next time, Lord willing, I'll cover the next section. Now, I I can anticipate, perhaps for some of you, the thought has crossed your mind. Seriously, Paul? Seriously, this Paul, not this Paul. (laughs) Seriously, Paul, why are we talking about money and giving again? I mean, it's only been emphasized through two special giving projects over six of the past seven years. And and perhaps if you're new with us, we've had to emphasize giving in unique ways to to get here in this building. So I'm sympathetic to that thought. It's, It's probably perfectly natural for that to pop into your head. Well, I did not choose this text because I thought there was a need to talk about giving again, all right? That's not the reason. I am simply preaching it this morning because I decided to work through 2 Corinthians about two and a half years ago, and this is the next passage. So here we are. So whether you're someone who's been a generous giver for decades, or perhaps you're here as one who isn't really giving at all. God has providentially brought us to this particular text today. And I believe He has something for all of us to consider. I invite you to follow along as I read verses 1-15 through 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their parts. But as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should should be eased and you be burdened, but that is a matter of fairness your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness as it is written whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack so paul's goal in these two chapters is to chapters 8 and 9 is to encourage the corinthians to follow through in completing the gift to the poor christians in the jerusalem church we see here in verse 10 that they had initially shown zeal for the project, but it had kind of fizzled out. And We can suspect, I think, that the collection ended because of the sin that had crept into the church. Their waning commitment was most likely due to the deteriorating relationship between them and Paul as their trust shifted to false teachers they had come to embrace. And I think we can imagine these false teachers who had essentially replace Paul in influence probably weren't too keen on the need to finish up with this gift. These guys were not shy about taking advantage of the Corinthians, and we can safely bet that they would have wanted the money for themselves. But as we considered last week in chapter 7, the painful letter that Paul wrote led to a godly sorrow, which led to repentance, and the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians was restored. So in addition to delivering the painful letter... We see in verse 6 that Titus was tasked with retrieving the remainder of their financial gift. Paul asked him, when he got to Corinth, complete this act of grace also. So just as Paul knew that the Corinthians' response to his painful letter would reveal the true condition of their hearts, it was a test of sorts. He knew that their response to this encouragement... Would be, further confirm, would be further confirmation of their repentance and would show that indeed their faith was sincere. Indeed, their repentance was genuine. Paul points the Corinthians here in verse 7 to the various gifts given by the Spirit as evidence that their lives had changed, that they were indeed Christians. He says there, you excel or you abound in everything. Speech, knowledge, earnestness. Therefore, he says, you should excel also in this gift or in this fruit of giving. I heard this past week a definition for generosity from Kevin DeYoung that I absolutely love. It's short, it's concise, it's really effective for me. Here it is. Generosity is the spiritual discipline of having holes in your pockets for Jesus. The spiritual discipline of having holes in your pockets for Jesus. Our text this morning is all about Christian generosity. And we see in these verses that Christian generosity is marked by joyful sacrifice. It's motivated by grace. And it's giving in proportion to what we have. First, we see that it's marked by joyful sacrifice. This this comes out in the example of the Macedonians here in the first five verses. Paul says that in severe affliction, likely persecution, they're they're being persecuted, probably their stuff even is being taken from their homes, perhaps famine. In the midst of severe affliction, plus extreme poverty, The Macedonians have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you follow that? Severe affliction plus extreme poverty equals a wealth of generosity. I mean, in what universe does that add up? It doesn't add up. It makes utterly no sense if not for the phrase, their abundance of joy. Their abundance of joy in verse 2. That is the key. I mean, it's very obvious here that their joy was not found in what they had. Rather, their joy was a result of God's work of grace in their hearts. In spite of persecution and poverty, they experienced an abundance and an overflow of joy. I mean, it, it, the picture I get here is you couldn't even keep a lid on it. They, they had to give, and they gave even beyond what they had. Do you find this surprising? Yeah, Paul sure did. He says here that it wasn't even what he expected. The reason it happened, we see there in verse 5. The reason this happened is that the Macedonian Christians gave themselves first to the Lord and then to Paul, implying, I think, that devotion to Christ will lead to support of his apostle who had taught them so well. So we see that this joyful generosity was part of their discipleship. It was a result of their following Jesus who knew on an even deeper level of affliction and poverty far more than the Macedonians even knew. Their following of Jesus, who, in spite of that, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross for their sake. So the Macedonian Christians gave beyond anything Paul anticipated because they gave of themselves. So, applying this to our lives, it, it won't really do any good to give our possessions to God unless we have first Given ourselves to Him. And in fact, until we give ourselves to God, we're probably not going to have much of a desire to give our possessions to Him. Jesus can have our money and not our hearts, but He cannot have our hearts and not have our money. So when we fail to be generous, or wherever there may be the lack of joy in our giving, It's most likely that an idol, whether it be a person or a thing, has crept in and displaced the Lordship of Christ in our hearts. So as those who have given ourselves to the Lord, we must fight for continued, ongoing loyalty to Him in all areas of our life. And the sacrifice in the Macedonians giving here is really clear, isn't it? It's really graphic. It's really stark. They had practically nothing, but they still gave. And their sacrifice pales in comparison to the sacrifice of Christ that we see in Paul's second example. So I wonder this morning, it's something we should ask ourselves. Is there any evidence of sacrifice in our giving? We should ask ourselves this question, does my giving require any sort of sacrifice? One author has said that generosity is not measured by how much the gift costs, but what the gift costs you. In other words, what are the things within my means that I want, or may even need, that I cannot have because of what I've given away? Now, when I ask that question, it's pretty easy to see how little sacrifice there is in my giving. So first, Christian generosity is marked by joyful sacrifice. Second, it's motivated by grace. It's motivated by grace. Verse one here, Paul, Paul, well, all through these chapters actually, verses eight, chapters eight and nine. Paul bases his appeal to the Corinthians on the grace of God that continues to be poured out in the lives of Christians. And the first thing he says here in chapter eight is that you guys need to know about the grace God has given to the churches in Macedonia. That is what they're joyful about. That is what has motivated them to give so sacrificially. God's grace doesn't lighten their afflictions. God's grace doesn't take away their poverty. Instead, God's grace opens their hearts and puts holes in their pockets. So this is why Paul didn't need to come up with a stirring motivational speech. He didn't need to twist their arms and try to... Talk them into giving. You see here in our text, the Macedonians were the the ones doing the begging. They were asking Paul for the opportunity to give because they were motivated by grace. In verse 9, Paul shifts the example from the Macedonians to Christ. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that... Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So This, this verse is so beautifully depicted in the hymn that Ethan played during the offertory and, and Ethan, I'll just say now that we're going to miss you as you leave in a few weeks. And we're going to miss your cello playing. But even far more than that, we're going to miss you and Nicole and we're thankful that you've been, been with us this summer. But think of that hymn. Thou who was rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake became as poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Jesus was rich. We heard in the news recently that on July 27th the CEO of Amazon became the richest man in the world worth 90.6 billion dollars. Even though he was dethroned the next day when the markets changed. 90.6 billion absolutely blows our mind, doesn't it? But it's nothing it is less than nothing in comparison to the wealth that Jesus possessed. He created everything, and so He owned everything. And in John 17, 5, He asked His Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. So not only did Jesus own everything, He dwelt with His Father and the Holy Spirit in unmitigated glory that they shared together in perfect fellowship. Jesus had it all. Absolutely nothing was lacking in His eternal and divine existence. Jesus was rich, but He became poor. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, 6-8, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men. And, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just as we cannot describe Christ's riches, we cannot describe his poverty, which he willingly chose to embrace. We see this poverty in his birth, born in a stable with a bunch of animals. We see this poverty in his life as he set aside his divine qualities and embraced the limitations of man. He experienced thirst and hunger, and he walked through the world he created with not even his own place to lay his head. We see this poverty in his death as he died abandoned by his friends and hated by his foes. He became poor on the cross because our sins bankrupted Him. And the most painful part of all was when His Father, His Father who He had experienced perfect fellowship with, turned His back on Christ as He bore the sins of the world and received the just and holy wrath of His Father. Why did Jesus do this? Why did He become poor in these ways? So that we might become rich. Jesus set aside His riches so that in our spiritual poverty, we might receive His eternal riches. All that Christ was and all that Christ is can be ours. Because of what Christ has done, we're offered every spiritual blessing, the down payment of which is ours now in this life, and the remainder of which is waiting for us in the life to come. This is grace. Not something we deserve. It's not something we can earn. Jesus did not have to do this. But He freely gave His life for a people rebelling against Him in sin. So I wonder this morning, do you know this grace? Not not just are you aware of it, or have a familiarity with it but have you personally experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ if not the good news of the gospel is that the eternal riches of Christ can be yours they can be yours if you but recognize your spiritual poverty turn from your sin and trust in trust through faith in the sacrifice of Christ for your sin it is resurrection as your only hope of salvation. Why would you go on in the poverty that leads to death when you're offered eternal riches that lead to life? I encourage you and I urge you to turn to Christ today and taste of his wealth. For those of us who claim to be Christians, do you realize, do, do we realize why Paul mentions this grace of Christ in a discussion about giving to the poor? Do, do we see how this relates to our personal finances? One author rightly concluded that when you stand beside the cross thoughtfully, it's really hard to be selfish. When we think of our giving, do our thoughts go to the cross? What a record of our spending! show that we really do know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The generosity of God as seen in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this has got to be the motivation. This must be the motivation for our giving. And since Jesus put holes in His hands for us, DeYoung states, it's not too much by His grace to put holes in our pockets for Him. Christian generosity is marked by joyful sacrifice. It's motivated by grace. And third, it's giving in proportion to what we have. It's giving in proportion to what we have. We see this here in verse 12 as Paul tells them that if the readiness, if the eagerness is there, your gift's acceptable based on what you have, not on what you don't have. So we see then whether or not our gift is pleasing to God depends on two things a readiness, an eagerness, a willingness to give, kind of like what the Macedonians had, in an amount given that's in proportion to what we have. It's according to our means. Note that he doesn't tell the Corinthians here how much they should give. I mean, I think it's very conceivable, and I at least thought is possible, that Paul could have thrown out some numbers for them. You know, maybe saying something like, all right, guys, the Macedonian churches came up with $3,000. Way more than I ever expected. I know that you guys have a lot more money than they do, so I think you should give at least $20,000. But the Macedonians far exceeded my expectations, which I know you will do as well. No numbers. He simply says that your gift will be acceptable as long as you're willing to give and you do it in proportion to what you have. Before we think more carefully about what Paul means by this phrase, according to what a person has, let's consider briefly what he does not mean. And I think we see that here in verses 13 through 15. Notice there in verse 13, Paul states, the point isn't that you should essentially just trade places with the Jerusalem Christians. So you give everything away so that you become poor and they become rich. It's not what he says. Rather, he applies, he appeals to the principle of fairness. He says they should give on the basis of equity so that each one has enough. The Corinthians' abundance will supply what the Jerusalem Christians were lacking. Now, some of you, political minds or government sort of oriented people, might think, hmm, I'm smelling something here. On the surface, it's possible for one to see these verses as a primitive form of socialism or communism. But what Paul is talking about is not a redistribution of wealth as defined by either of those systems. Rather, as one commentator said, it's a redistribution of love to meet the needs of others. So what Paul is highlighting here, I think, is the unity in Christ that the Corinthian church shares with the churches in Jerusalem. And we, we get, I think, a, a glimpse into this in Romans 15. Romans 15, 25-27, where Paul says, the end, near the end of his letter to the, to the Romans, at present, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. That's the gift. For Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia is the region that the Corinthian church was in, have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So I, I think this is indication that Paul's thinking in terms of the unity that they share. It was the Jews through whom the gospel came to the Gentiles. So Paul is highlighting their unity, and he's bringing out the principle of fairness and equity. Paul quotes in verse fifteen from the Exodus account in Exodus sixteen, the, the account in Exodus sixteen where we see those who gathered more manna than they needed, shared it with those who gathered less. And the point being that one can share with others and still have enough for themselves. One commentator helpfully noted that under the Old Covenant, God met Israel's physical needs with manna and quail, but did not change their spiritual condition. But under the New Covenant... God met the spiritual needs of the Corinthians in order that they might meet the physical needs of others. So if the Corinthians should not give so much that they become burdened, that they become poor, how much then should they give? Which I think leads us to dig a little bit deeper into the meaning of the phrase in verse 12, according to what a person has. What does that mean? What does according to what a person has really mean? I was helped to look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 16, and at the end of his letter there, Paul gave the initial instructions to the Corinthians regarding their gift for the Jewish Christians. So, the end of, of um, the first letter, chapter 16, Paul's giving them instructions about this gift. that they they can give to the Jewish Christians. And he says there that each one should save some of their income and they should set it aside for the offering taken on the Lord's Day. How much? How much should they set aside and put in the offering for this gift? The Greek isn't the exact same word, but the phrasing is very similar to what we see here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians according to what what one has. And it was helpful for me to look at this phrase in 1 Corinthians 16 in some different translations. So he says they should give in keeping with how he prospers. To the extent that God has blessed you. They should give in keeping with your income. So this New Testament principle of giving in proportion to what you have replaces the principle of the tithe that we see in the Old Testament, which is 10%. In all the instructions of the churches in the New Testament, you will not find any reference to the tithe. It's just not there. You see, the tithe emphasizes law rather than grace. And as we have seen here, grace is the motivation for giving in the New Covenant. So the tithe puts focus on how much one is required to give and allows one to ignore the more significant issue of how much one keeps for himself. Jesus highlights this several times, perhaps most notably with the story of the widow's mite in Luke 21. And reflecting on that story in a hymn called Simple Living, Keith and and Getty have a great line that says, Not what you give, but what you keep is what the king is counting. So, so 10%, the, the standard in the Old Testament of the tithe, it may be a good starting point. But it shouldn't be our ending point. There, there will be times in our life when we should probably give less than 10%. And there will be times in our lives when we probably should give more. So, so God's concern isn't that we're dutifully giving 10%, but that we're willingly giving percent to the extent God has blessed us in keeping with our income, according to all that we have, whatever that may be. So There's a great freedom here. There's great freedom in this proportional giving. I, I don't have to give a set percentage. And I don't have to give as much as the next guy. This frees us from the law and the guilt that can come from not being able to give 10% or not being able to give what someone else may be giving. But does this freedom make it easy to know how much we should give? It sure doesn't make it easier for me. I mean, this is a point where I feel like the law would be a lot easier. Just give me the percentage. Hey, tell me what I've got to give. So with the freedom of proportional giving comes a challenge. The challenge to discern whether or not we're giving what we should in in light of what God has given us. And in light of this challenge, the fact that there's a challenge here, I think it would be good for us to think about it just a little bit more. So, let's do that. Let's just meditate a little bit more on this phrase, according to what you have. Does Does it mean? Does according to what you have mean this? Is it talking about what you have left after you're done with all your spending and savings, Well, I don't think that really fits with what Paul said about the Macedonians and how they gave. They gave beyond their ability and required sacrifice. So, don't think that's what Paul has in mind. And I think the key here is to remember that everything we have has been given to us by God. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. So, according to what you have means Everything. All that we have. All that we control. All that comes through our hands. All that we have is God in the first place. We are stewards. So every dollar needs to be spent, saved, and given in such a way that the owner of the money is pleased. As stewards, we aim to be faithful. The story is told of John Wesley who was hanging some pictures he had just purchased for his home, when one of the chambermaids came to the door. It was winter, and she only had on a light coat. So he reached into his pocket to get some money to give her, for her a new coat, and he only had a few coins. There wasn't enough there for her to buy a new coat. So this left him asking, Will my, will my master say, Well done, good and faithful steward. You've adorned your walls with the money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. So in 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. He records one year that his income was 30 pounds. His living expenses were 28 pounds. So he had two pounds to give away that year. The next year his income doubled, but he still lived on 28 pounds and he gave away 32 pounds that year. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. But he remained living on 28 pounds, and that year gave away 62 pounds. Wesley believed that with increasing income, the Christian standard of giving should increase, not their standard of living. So the point of sharing this illustration isn't that we shouldn't buy pictures for our house, right? Right? The point isn't that we should be giving 90% of our income away. But it should serve to give us pause. It should cause us to just think about how we're using our money. When you give, do you give knowing that all that you have is God's? That everything we have, and, and not just part of it, should be available for God's purposes? Now, I think it's safe to say that if you're one of God's children, if you are part of the people of God, that you like the idea of being generous. That's one of the marks of being a Christian. But I also think it's safe to say that being generous isn't something that just automatically happens. We shouldn't settle for good intentions. And so, in order to be growing in our generosity, There's probably some changes that need to be made. So as we close this morning, I just would like to share a few points of application that I hope will be helpful as we rejoice with the freedom and wrestle with the challenges of deciding how much to give away. And I should say here that in this area of faithful stewardship and generosity, I feel like I'm in grade school. I really do. So the applications here to follow are every bit as much for me as anyone here. So, some practical things I hope that will be helpful. First, start with your hearts. Remember that God is more concerned with our hearts than the amounts that we give. So this is where we've got to start. During a Scottish worship service in Edinburgh many years ago, It's reported that one member of the congregation actually put a piece of crown into the offering rather than a penny. Wincing in the realization of what he had done, he he quickly asked for it back. But the usher replied, Sorry. In once, in forever. Oh well, groaned the giver. I'll get credit for it in heaven. No, said the usher. You'll get credit only for a penny. An eager willingness to give is far more important than the amounts that we give. Second, evaluate your perspective, priorities, and expectations. It's been documented that one of the reasons Christians give less than 10% of their income is they say they can't afford to, the money's just simply not there. At the same time, the statistics show giving going down. They show spending going up. So we're probably right to conclude that the issue really isn't a lack of money. It's what the money is being spent on. And so before we conclude that we can't give anything, we should look at what we spend on entertainment, technology, hobbies, our vehicles, vacations, our houses, clothing, credit card debt, etc. And as we do that, most of us will find there isn't anything left to give because one of two things are true. First, poor choices have been made in the past that are tying up our money. Well, we may also see that an unnecessary standard of living is something that we're trying to achieve. See, most of us could probably be far more generous if we would just make better decisions. And also many of us think we have less than we really do. And there are so many things that our world tells us are necessities or even our right to have when in reality we don't need it. And we aren't entitled to have it just because someone else does. So let's be honest. Regardless of our income, you and I are rich Americans. And we should be giving as one who has plenty, not as one who has little. Now, not every decision we make with our money is of equal importance. Not every decision we make with our money deserves the same level of thought. But here are some practical questions we can ask that are at least helpful for me. First, is this a true need? If not, why do I want it? So often, we desire things for the wrong reasons, and there's great benefit in carefully and honestly considering why we want the things that we want. Third, will this have any negative effects on my relationship with Christ or His church? And then last, how can this be used to glorify God and love other people? Third, have a plan. Have a plan. There's a huge difference between wanting to give and planning to give. And if we don't have a plan, we're probably not going to be very generous. So it's really, 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 really helpful to have a budget. And as we work on our budget, rather than determining how much we want to spend on ourselves and then decide what to give out of whatever's left over, As much as we are able, we should first determine how much to give and then decide how to spend what's left over from that. We ought to consider treating giving like a fixed expense. As as this much comes in each month, that much goes out each month. And perhaps consider having part of what you decide to give set aside for unexpected needs in the lives of others that may arise. So someone loses their job and things are really, really tight for them. You're prepared and you're eager to give. Or maybe there's a natural disaster in a third world country and you have money in your budget to send to a trusted charity designed to help. Or we have a missionary speaker come through. You have something set aside above your regular offering. And also, I think one of the big benefits of having a budget is it forces you to keep track of what you spend. So you can see how much you spent last year on eating out, for example. I mean, it's really eye opening to see where our money is going. And tracking it will help you control spending, it helps show you where you could perhaps adjust things so that you can give more. And even if you don't have a highly developed budget, think about tracking your spending anyway, and that will probably help you in the process of working towards a budget. So generosity requires forethought, planning, and through the entire process requires much prayer. Four, be willing to seek counsel. So, so we, I think, view our finances as something very personal, and it is personal. But as we've seen here in our text this morning, our finances are really an aspect of our discipleship directly connected to our following of Christ. So at points where we may struggle to figure out what it looks like to give in proportion to what we have, we should be willing to seek wise and godly counsel. And Perhaps you've made some poor decisions that have crimped your ability to give. Or perhaps you've made some necessary decisions that have crimped your ability to give. It may be helpful to talk to somebody about how to move forward in a way that will help you become more generous. And as we consider major purchases or other decisions regarding our finances, we should consider talking to to others to help us think through whether or not this would be wise and what are the implications it will have on our ability to give. Last, start now. It can be easy to think that when I reach a certain level of income, then, then I can start to be generous. Teenagers, college students, those of you who are perhaps right out of college, this might be a particular temptation for you. What you get for babysitting, mowing lawns, Five hours a week you work during college may not be much. But it's something. It's something. And you can start practicing generosity now. And don't think, why bother? My 20 bucks a month or $10 towards that need isn't even going to make a difference anyway. It's not the point. Your need to give is greater than any need you may be giving to. To remember, it's about your heart, not about the amount. I remember as a kid getting allowance, and I, I distinctly remember at some point I was getting two fifty a week, and my dad would lay the cash out on the counter in four piles, one for each of us, and um, there's my two fifty. And I distinctly remember him making it very clear that one of those quarters, twenty five cents should be given to the church. And I'm so thankful for parents who taught me that. I also remember we had a bank. I think, it was a, I think it was shaped like a Hershey bar. But there was a bank, and this was back in the days when people actually used cash to buy things. But um, throughout the year, we, we put, all of us put our loose change in this Hershey bar bank. And then throughout the year, as, as we would become aware of people in need, we would go to that and seek to help. We called it our Others Bank. I'm really thankful for parents who taught me and modeled for me this generous giving and and for all of us that are parents here. We should both be teaching our children the discipline of generosity and we ought to be showing them what it looks like. And perhaps you're here this morning and you don't have any income. There may come a time in your life when that's true of you. If it's not true of you now, In that time, your goal should be to give what you do have, like time, like relationships and talents. So that the first day that you do have an income, it will be natural for you to give that as well. So our gifts are acceptable based on what we have, even if it's just a little. So don't wait to give until you think you have enough. Because chances are with that kind of a mindset, enough may never come. Christian generosity is the spiritual discipline of having holes in our pockets for Jesus. This generosity is marked by joyful sacrifice, it's motivated by grace, and it's giving in proportion to what we have. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank You that You've poured it out in our hearts, undeserved, through and through. And I pray for anyone here this morning who may not know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way. And, and I just would pray that You would draw them to Yourself. Cause them, through the power of Your Spirit, to see it, to love it, and to want it more than life itself. Father, we ask that our motive for giving would be this grace, not fear or guilt or manipulation or so many other motives that creep in that don't honor you at all. And may your grace lead us to give generously with joyful sacrifice based on whatever it is that you're pleased to give us. Father, we confess that our hearts are sinful, they're so easily deceived. So help us to see the idols that may be there and grant us wisdom to make wise decisions regarding what we should spend, what we should save, and what we should give away. Father, we ask that you would do all this and even more for your glory through Christ. Amen.